Coming up on today's show, a horrific attack in London, Ontario over the weekend. The Prime Minister calling it a terrorist attack. A family of five run down, four of them killed simply because they were Muslim. We'll talk with Adil Hassan. We'll also talk more about the lab leak idea that's once again being considered as to the origin of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. And Jason Kenney announcing the province will hold a referendum on transfer payments. Talking about the London... Well, the Prime Minister is calling it a terrorist attack. No terrorism-related charges have been laid at this point. Basically, what we know is a 20-year-old man drove his truck up onto the sidewalk and mowed down a family of five, killing four of them, and police saying they believe, based on their investigation to this point, uh, this was motivated strictly by hatred. Uh, He wanted to kill them because they were Muslim. Pure and simple. That's the motivation at this point. Uh, let's get some insight on this. We're going to chat now with Adil Hassan, who is with the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council. Adil, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for having me, Shay. You know, obviously this this is affecting all Canadians, but I want to ask you, you know, um, you're very involved in the Muslim community in Edmonton and across the country. What's the feeling right now? Is there a lot of fear? Yeah, you know, I spent yesterday having a lot of uh, uncomfortable conversations with a lot of folks, you know, folks that that felt unsafe, that, uh, you know, it's been a ritual for a lot of folks during COVID that, you know, you don't have much else to do, so you go for a walk with your family. So I think it really hit home uh, with a lot of folks that, you know, might dress a different way or or look a little different or, or, you know, people, it really, uh, it really exposed, uh, exposed, uh, a deep-seated fear that a lot of folks have when they're out in public. Yeah, because, I mean, this incident, Adil, is obviously horrific uh, at, a, at a level unlike, I mean, regarding there's the mosque shooting in Quebec and things like that, but but this is, this is not the first incident of Islamophobia that we've reported on quite recently, uh, including in our part of the world. This has been an increasing phenomenon, correct? Yeah, without a doubt, we've seen... Uh, We've seen the incidents of, of, of hate crimes and Islamophobic incidents around Canada, here in Alberta, uh, increasing over the last number of years. And, you know, it's moved, uh, moved away from a lot of online rhetoric and, and, and hate mongering to, you know, stuff that has real world implications in terms of uh, affecting people on the ground. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that escalate uh, very, very quickly. You know, when we see our political leaders all standing up in the House of Commons and, uh, you know, the chief of police in London talking about it, and the mayor of London talking about it, um, they're all saying the right things. But is it being backed up, Adil? I mean, we, we all know that when times like this, something happens and they all come out and say the things that they need to say. But are, are you seeing, I mean, I, you work on this tirelessly. I know this. This is part of what you do. Um, are you seeing the response prior to this or does it take an event like this for them to come out and speak publicly? What we've seen time and time and time again is that you know, it's easy to say thoughts and prayers and, and, mm-hmm. and to stand up and to offer condolences, but uh, we haven't yet seen any concrete actions or any, any policy initiatives from, from any order of government that will meaningfully tackle this problem. You know, the, the increased problems of, uh, of, of racism, Islamophobia that, that we've seen across Canada, we haven't seen any order of government really stand up and say, hey, this is an issue and we're going to tackle it head on. Um, what are you telling Muslims today? I mean, imagine it's just just knowing, knowing that going out in public um, and just by the way you're dressed or the way that you look can, in extreme you know, in circumstances. My, 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 my mom takes my, my son out for walks often, right? And, and, and obviously she, like, she was crying on the phone yesterday for quite a while. Uh, and, but, you know, the, the message is the same, that, you know, uh, the community is resilient and, and we're not going to 
let incidents like this change how we behave and how we interact and 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 how we act in public. So uh, that that's the message that I've been giving folks uh, in in conversations. It's a it's a tough message to give, and it's really uh, it's really had we've had some some really hard conversations yesterday and and, and today as well. So uh, you know. The the, uh, the the hope is that we really see some concrete actions, some some uh, some some really thoughtful policy put forward uh, by our elected leaders to to really. That's what we really need to see to say, hey, this is actually a problem, and we actually care about what what's happening to folks on the ground. What is that, Adele? What is that? What do you, what do you want to see? I think we need to see we need to see uh, we need to see uh, you know concrete action around uh, around different policies and 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 uh, it, it you know we've 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 too often we've too often uh, we've too often looked at these individual these incidents in silos and and really these uh, these issues in, in, in like uh, segmented by community and by but we really need to figure out how can we look at uh, you know policy solutions that. Uh, that take into account, you know, all these issues, racism, mental health, uh, you know, uh, Islamophobia, you know, the, the, a lot of issues are, are, are related. And we need to look at how do we uh, tackle problems in, in, you know, around this in, in a, with a wider lens and really figuring out uh, long-term solutions. And, and a, lot of that's, that, a lot of that starts with, you know, uh, putting meaningful groups together to have conversations and, and, and expert experts together in terms of how do we how do we tackle these issues you know right now we've got over over 100 groups that are right-wing supremacist groups that uh preach hate mm-hmm. operating in canada like that 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 that's something that we we know exists here in canada uh they're operating here they they, they have a presence online and on the ground and they exist to perpetuate hate and to and, and to uh and to promote fear uh and you know when those groups are allowed to operate with reckless abandon and and there's no rules around uh, what they can and can't do, I think that that's a good place to start to see that hey, where where is hate being perpetuated? Where is hate being promoted? And stop it, right? Exactly, exactly. And and like you know, it's uh, we've seen some action with uh, with the three percenters and and a couple groups being added to the terror list, uh, but that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. Yeah. Adil, thank you so much for your insight. I always appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Shay. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for calling. That's Adele Hassan, who is the Vice President of Civic Engagement with AMPAC, the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council. The search for answers continues around SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. Where did it come from, and how did it get unleashed upon the world? Now, despite a... uh, Well, they're calling it an investigation, but that's being very, very generous uh, by the World Health Organization. There are a few leading theories, but at this point, there really are no definitive answers. But one of the theories that's being kicked around is possibly a leak from a lab in Wuhan. Of course, you heard the wet market theory that it uh, transferred to humans uh, from a wet market or a seafood market. Uh, in Wuhan. Um, A couple of competing theories out there. Let's see what we can find out about the very latest as we chat with Benoit Barbeau, who is an associate professor at the University of Quebec. Uh, Benoit, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Yes, so this situation, of course, um, let's touch first on the uh, quote-unquote investigation that was done. Um, really wasn't much of an investigation, right? We can't draw any conclusions from that. That was the one that said it transferred from a bat. Yeah, well, so the investigation was obviously launched by the WHO, and what they really wanted to address is whether there was any uh, evidence toward the possibility that the virus had been uh, leaked out from the lab, uh, probably 
from someone who was working in that lab and would have been infected. And so um, the investigation was meant, therefore, to obviously ask questions of users of the lab and also look at the data, look at what was available. Uh, there's been, uh, based on what came out from that and all the members of that committee, it seems like uh, the, the investigation did not, was not, the, the investigators were not capable of going as far as they yeah. wanted. And a lot of researchers around the world we're criticizing the outcome of this or the conclusion drawn by this investigation as not being, uh, I mean, uh, not based on enough uh, investigation. So the lim- there was important limitation of what they could have done, actually, in at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah, they're dramatically limited into what they could actually look into. So... Um, the theory, uh, the two theories that I've heard most prominently, the wet market, uh, it came from the wet market in Wuhan, the seafood market. Um, that theory, it's still, some say that's that's the most likely outcome, right? A lot of people are still saying that that theory does have some weight to it. From the wet market? The wet market right now is uh, is very difficult to make to uh, uh, make that a possibility because then you would have, really have to have multiple people who got infected in the wet market. And uh, that and there's people around with, who got infected also inside Wuhan. So that uh, the basis of the uh, the hypothesis by which Wuhan would be, I mean, the wet market would be the center of the uh, transmission, natural transmission, is not necessarily the most prevalent um, uh, hypothesis right now. So I think that the most, uh, the, the one which are more important would be, seems to be more um, uh, higher evidence uh, is it would be uh, transmission from the bat or via another intermediary host uh, in which the virus would have been able to transmit to um, the human. And that's, I would say, probably the most uh, credible hypothesis. However, the lab leak yeah. definitely gains weight and should not be discarded because of not only what we've been hearing recently, but also uh, also the fact that, I mean, all of this pandemic started in Wuhan, and Wuhan has a very important Wuhan, uh, Institute of Virology where they're doing uh, important experiments with bad coronaviruses and what we call gain of function. And that, given that uh, coincidence, that leads to some speculation that uh, a lab leak could be uh, a po- is definitely a possibility by which the virus could have uh, therefore started that pandemic, this pandemic. Yeah, you mentioned that lab, and then, of course, there was the Wall Street Journal report that I think it was three workers from that lab ended up in a hospital before anybody ever knew about this with some sort of respiratory illness. Yeah. Um, when, when you mentioned gain of function, um, explain that, because that's an important component here. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, so, so what, is, what is to understand about gain function? First of all, these are experiments which are meant to speed up the evolutionary process, which normally happens when a virus is transmitted from one species to the other. In that case, for example, those bat coronaviruses can actually, there's some of those viruses which might acquire different properties, characteristics, which would allow it to jump uh, the species barrier and therefore infect human and then eventually perhaps continue evolving in the human and eventually be capable of transmitting human to human. So in the lab, there are ways that you can actually accelerate this process, which can take months, years, and decades. And so in in order for you to start from, for example, bat coronavirus, 
and uh, speed up that those changes, those modifications by using cell lines, but most importantly, animal models and even uh, specific tools which allow you to change the genome of these viruses in a way that you think that might help it eventually evolve quickly in the lab to uh, uh, with characteristic which would allow it to infect uh, mammalian species and therefore human. And that that type of experiments are very valuable in the sense that it allows us to perhaps predict what might be an outcome from those uh, animal viruses and that would allow it to eventually infect humans. So therefore, not only understanding the principle, understanding the modification, but also perhaps even preventing it by a vaccine um, approach or a therape- uh, therapeutic uh, agent. So that, therefore, there's some value into that research. Mm-hmm. But obviously, when you start working on viruses, such as coronaviruses, influenza virus, and you start modifying them, you don't know exactly how this will, how the virus will evolve in your tube or in your flask and what will be the outcome. And eventually it will be perhaps more transmittable, more infectious toward uh, mammalian cells or mammalian species, but it, it evolves in a certain way. And so allowing you perhaps, like I said, to uh, predict what my outcome, but there's obviously a danger to that. And that's sure. why these experiments need to be done into extremely high security, high security labs, such as biosafety level four labs, which is, is a lab which uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology has. So the interesting point here is lots of these experiments and lots of these labs have international involvement, right? We know the U.S. was involved in the Wuhan uh, lab in terms of funding it for this very kind of work, right? So they're in a really difficult position now because Dr. Fauci was involved in some of that work. There was a lot of funding and things like that. And now um, it looks like there's a chance, at least, that that's exactly what happened. And that's why we're dealing with this now. Well, I think that, you know, like I said, I do have to emphasize that the the reason why the the, the the Americans have funded this type of research is because it's very very valuable research. Uh, it is there's a risk to it, but if your environment in your if your lab environment and the staff who is working on these type of uh, in this type of environment are well trained, there shouldn't be any problem because obviously there's extremely it's a high security lab and there's different steps for you to make sure that people working in this lab are protected from the viruses and all material which are in contact with these viruses are very efficiently eliminated so that there are basically no chances that they're getting, that could leak out. But however, uh, like you said, I mean, the possibility remains. Uh, human error is possible. Um, it is not necessarily impossible that... A person who was working on those bad coronaviruses or whatever coronaviruses have been they've been working with might have been in contact with this virus and therefore would have without showing necessarily symptoms early on could have actually been become one or two or three individual become uh, initial uh, super spreaders so these are scenarios which are not impossible if you are in a bi safety level four where you follow up you're following the the correct um, uh, safety measures that should never happen. But like I said, scenarios, such scenarios are not impossible. And therefore, the American obviously in that situation are are looking back at how much they were involved through their funding. I mean, the the reason why they were funding this research, like I said, was because 
it is important research. It allows you to make sure, you know, yeah, to, to understand much more about how virus can evolve from one species to and eventually be able to infect another species. But you have to make sure that wherever these experiments are done, the safety measures are followed according to the risk factors. So they have, if they are, this was, this was a biosafety, and this remains a biosafety level four lab. So this is a top security lab working with Ebola viruses, working with anthrax, so very dangerous infectious agents. So it has to follow the guidelines and make sure that they can keep these infectious agents confined and limited and uh, having no uh, chance of leaking out of the virus. Question. We know we have these labs in Canada. Um, yeah, we have one. We have one in Winnipeg, right? Yeah. Um, we can be reasonably confident that we're doing things differently here and we don't have the same kind of concerns? Or, I mean, is this... A, a potential is there, um, but are the, are the things um, put in place to make sure that this doesn't happen? Well, definitely. I, I mean, the, in, in the, the Winnipeg lab, I mean, everything is followed accordingly to uh, what the, uh, the, the international guidelines. We have the Public Health Agency of Canada who has a set of guidelines for all biosafety level labs from one to four. And when it comes to the biosafety level four, obviously all those measures need to be followed thoroughly uh, and has to be, and even obviously in the institute, institution itself, there's committees which uh, are making sure that everything is uh, follows the guidelines and what we need to be, make sure that uh, to avoid any um, leakage or infection of uh, in, uh, people working with these uh, very dangerous and uh, infectious agents. So uh, in that in that case, I think that we can definitely be uh, reassured that, that this that this type of scenario is very, uh, very unlikely to happen in our own biosafety level four, as well as biosafety level four, which have uh, uh, exists around the world right. mostly. And this, there's been a shift in terms of how we deal with biosafety. And there's been also some strong uh, guidelines and strong measures which have been imposed and also some extremely tight uh, regulation which allows labs to work or not work with certain infection agents depending on which biosafety level you are. But when we're talking about biosafety level four, you have to be have follow these guidelines very thoroughly and making sure that you have you have in a very you're in a very safe environment to work with these viruses. Benoit, thank you so much for the insight. Great discussion. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank have you very day. much. That is Benoit Barbeau, who is um, a professor and uh, associate professor at the University de Quebec à Montréal. Should Section 36.2 of the Constitution Act 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments, be removed from the Constitution? That is the question that will be put to Alberta voters this fall as the long-awaited and long-promised referendum on equalization will be brought forward at long last. Of course, Jason Kenney uh, campaigned on that. It's been a constant theme from him and his government, a big part of the fair deal for Alberta, part of the McKinnon Blue uh, Ribbon Report onto the economy, all, all these sorts of things. So, promise kept, right? We'll have the referendum. But what does it mean? Kenny himself saying yesterday that it doesn't really mean that any changes will be forced because of it, but it changes the dynamic around it. So let's get some insight on that with Eric Adams, who is a vice dean and professor of law at the University of Alberta. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. 
My pleasure. So this referendum will be put before Alberta voters. Let's just define the parameters of this referendum. Um, what kind of approval does it need to receive in order for Jason Kenney to say that Albertans support... First of all, what does what do we support? Re-examining, reopening. I mean, he he said himself it, it it can't it can't trigger any change, right? Well, I, I guess I will give him credit for this. It's it's a fairly clear question because there's, there's not much ambiguity there. It simply says do you want to take equalization out of the constitution, yes or no? And um, you know, I I think the answer is if he gets a if he gets a majority vote on that, then he he claims some victory. Obviously, there is a, a push by. The, the UCP government to have a have a strong yes vote. Uh, the Minister of Justice yesterday said we need to speak with one voice on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's not like they're you know testing the waters. They they think they know the vote they're going to get. They're cer- they certainly have a view on what they think Albertans should vote on, and they're hoping that uh, that that a yes victory gives them some kind of leverage in a constitutional debate with uh, the other partners of Confederation and. And that's the part where I say, you know, we part company because I actually think this is an exercise in politics, but it has almost no chance of having any constitutional impact. Yeah, in order to have this removed from the Constitution or in order to make any change to the Constitution, there are certain requirements that have to be met where other provinces need to get on board, right? That's exactly right. It's the supreme law of Canada. We 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 have a constitution that's meant to be hard to change. You you don't uh, get rid of a section based on uh, a change in the weather, and that's that's the idea of 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 the difference between a constitutional document that that binds us and sets the rules for government and a regular law or bylaw that may may come or go. So we have a a, a rigorous amending formula that says if you want to change this thing you got to mean it. And in Canada, it's it's almost harder to amend our constitution than, than most of the other constitutions in the world. And in in this particular section, the, the equalization formula, if, if that's going to be changed in the constitution, it needs the approval of Ontario, Quebec, two provinces from Atlantic Canada, BC, Alberta, the federal government. I mean, the list of requirements to actually make this constitutional change will be virtually impossible, if not simply impossible, for the provincial government of Alberta to meet, and I suspect they know that. Yeah, and I think the Premier was sort of hinting at that yesterday, saying it won't cause any change, but he says it gives him uh, more of a leg to stand on, more sway, he thinks, when he has these discussions with other provincial leaders. But if if they like it and, and they benefit from it, how does it give him any sort of added leverage in these discussions? And are they even interested in having these discussions? There's been no indication, is there? Well, that's certainly right. And based on the rhetoric we saw in the uh, in both the both the house, both the legislature, and and in the press conference yesterday, I mean, part of the the political strategy it would seem of whipping up Alberta voters is is telling them about how unfair other provinces are treating Alberta. So you're not exactly uh, feathering the bed for constitutional conversations with the other provinces if part of your strategy has been to condemn Quebec or condemn other provinces or British Columbia or Ontario or anywhere else or Atlanta, Canada, say, you know, these are, these are defeatist uh, provinces that don't want to develop their resources and they've been treating Alberta unfairly for, for 30 years. Uh, you know, you're obviously not uh, going to be popular at the party. So it's really not a strategy, I don't think, that's designed to 
to actually seriously have constitutional talks. What I think the political strategy here is, is uh, it's, and it's part of a wider political strategy that we've seen from this government and of uh, a piece with the war room, with the, the Allen inquiry, and it's basically that says, let's keep people mad that, uh, that when times are tough here, it's because there are other forces to blame, and don't you know it, we're standing up to those other forces, whether it's Ottawa or whether it's environmental groups or whether it's, you know, whoever. We'll find them, we'll fight them, and we'll get mad. And uh, they think they've got a electoral mandate to do that uh, for that approach. And uh, presumably with the, with the downturn of popularity of this particular government after this pandemic, there's a sense that let's get back to our core strategy here. Our core strategy is, is we're mad, and uh, we've got people to blame. And that's going to keep the attention on, on that uh, channel. You know, when we talk about the equalization payments, and we're getting a lot of texts from listeners every time we have this discussion is, well, Jason Kenney was the one who put together the formula that's in place right now. Um, it was under the Harper government the last time these were revisited, correct? Yes, and so there's a distinction between the, the, the constitutional promise of equalization. Our, our Constitution says we're committed as a country to this idea of equalization. And so that's stated in very general terms. But of course, then that has to turn into a particular formula, and it's run by the federal government. They don't, they don't have to run it by provinces because they're dealing with their, how they treat the tax dollars that they collect from, not from governments, but from individual taxpayers across Canada. So they develop a formula based on, okay, well, how, uh, how much fiscal capacity or, or what is the size of the economy of that particular province, and how much are they already taxing the citizens in those provinces. And they use those two basic metrics to come up with a number and a formula, and then that's going to spit out some payments to some provinces based on high taxation rates, and it's, gonna, it's going to disadvantage Alberta to a certain extent because, frankly, we've got high incomes mm-hmm. and we've got low rates of taxation. Alberta's not going to uh, take federal money from that system, but as many people have pointed out many times, that's because Alberta salaries are generally high. That's because Alberta tax rates are low. And so you can't complain about a formula that, that doesn't pay money to Alberta based on the fact that it, it, it's, it's premised on the notion of, of relatively high rates of income. Um, and so, again, Jason Kenney knows that. Jason Kenney was part of the federal government that designed that particular formula. But now, as Premier of Alberta, he knows that there is a strategy that he has to, I think, or he thinks that he has to maintain of talking tough, being tough, keeping on the pressure. And frankly, he knows that he's got some exposure on the right flank of his party, and there's been a growing independence movement. He's, he's bleeding some votes in, in rural Alberta. He says, my path to re-election is to shore up that right-hand side of my party. This is the way I'm going to do it. Now, Eric, um, we're saying that you know he can get this referendum and he can get the support of Albertans to say they want to change the equalization formula, but it really doesn't have any impact on the national scope of things, and it won't cause any change to happen. But we know that Quebec is um, making some unilateral changes to the Constitution, or talking about doing it anyway. What's the difference with what they're doing and what we're doing? Is it they're dealing primarily with things that happen within Quebec only, right? 
Yes, that's and and you and I spoke. I think a couple of weeks ago. I remember yeah. on on this exact topic. I I took the same. Just so your listeners know, I'm consistent on these uh, issues. I took the position that Quebec couldn't unilaterally change the constitution. They they have a stronger argument than Alberta does. There's there's no question that that the equalization formula is subject to the general amending formula of the Constitution. No one would debate that. Alberta doesn't debate that. In Quebec, they say, well, we're not actually changing the general terms of the Constitution. We're just dealing with our provincial Constitution. That's their argument. I don't think that's accurate either. I, I think they need to use the either the the, the different tools of the amending formula in that respect as well. Um, but what we see, and I think we're going to see increasingly as our, as our politics, our constitutional politics emerges out of this pandemic, is that, uh, is that dissatisfaction with, with the state of the economy or dissatisfaction with politics at the provincial level often starts to morph into these kinds of constitutional fights. And if you open up the hood to that uh, that car, you're going to find that uh, there's a lot going on in the engine that you hadn't expected. And every time as a country we've decided to open up the the, the constitutional hood, uh, it turns out there's a lot of different people with a lot of different demands. And so Alberta may think that they can keep this fight focused on equalization, but they're going to discover that Indigenous peoples have their own views about what our Constitution needs to say. Quebec has its own views. Environmentalists are going to say, where's the protection for the environment in the Constitution? There's no way to keep this conversation focused on the debate issue that the Alberta government wants it to be focused on. And so that's another dynamic that they're having to play with, I think. Absolutely. Okay, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. That is Eric Adams, who is a vice dean and professor of law at the University of Alberta. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.